Welcome, Chapel family. It is good to see you this morning. Also, everybody online uh, joining us. It's been cool just watching what God has done through our online presence as well. And so if you would, do me a favor just real quick, because uh, we don't spend money on marketing or advertising here hardly at all. And But you following us on social media and on YouTube helps us tremendously. So if you have your phone, you're going to get on it anyway and text but your lunch plans or anything else. Newburn's is open. Everything else is closed that you should go to. Rosie's, everything in Florence is closed. Can't go to Chick-fil-A. You can go to Bojangles. But if we would just take your phone out, and if you're on Facebook, just share our feed or go to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We upload new content on both of those all the time. And as you're doing that, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. As today, we are on what does the Bible say about blank part two Women in Ministry and Leadership. Next, we're going to close this out. We're going to talk about what does the Bible say about suicide and mental health, and we're going to dig deep in that as well. And so years ago, when John Adams was signing the Declaration of Independence, his wife Abigail wrote him a letter as he was away about to sign that great document that gave us the freedoms we have, and she wrote this to her husband. She said, I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And by the way, the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make. I desire you would remember the ladies. Everybody say, remember the ladies. I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. For remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. No truer statement. Remember the ladies. Remember the ladies. And I think many times uh, in, in church history, many times in our American history and world history, we can tend to forget the ladies. But ladies have been very vital to the moves of God that we've seen in our world. They've been very vital to our American history and world history as a whole. But it tends that men were the historians and many times would write out the women who were making a major impact in whatever area they were making them in. Just in America, women have been an amazing, powerful vessel God has used to create a move of God in America that we get to benefit from. One was Jarena Lee in 1819. She was the first African-American woman authorized to preach in the AME churches. And she spent eight years, eight years with the call of God on her life, asking her pastor to let her to preach. After eight years, she finally convinced him, she said, if Jesus, our Savior, died for you so that you could preach his message and his gospel, that same Jesus also died for me, why should I not get to tell his story? And he blessed her and sent her out. In one year, she traveled 2,325 miles and preached 128 sermons. So join her truth. In the early 1800s, 1843, she was a slave that had been beaten, suffered, and removed from her own kids and family over and over and over again. She lived a life of betrayal, abuse, neglect, and no value. And once she was emancipated from slavery, she converted to Christianity, met Jesus, and then started to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says this, that she was born into slavery, then repeatedly, repeatedly was sold and suffered beatings. But once she was saved, she changed her name to Sojourner Truth, to signify her calling from God to travel and preach, telling her friends, the Spirit calls me, I must go. Or Amy Simple McPherson, 
who was in L.A., who was a missionary to China. She's a widow by the age of 19. Moved back to L.A. and with her mom and her husband, her new husband, started a church in L.A. called the Angelus Temple. And as she was preaching, she suffered many different abuses from people not wanting women to preach or women to start churches. And her churches continued to grow by the Spirit of God and the moving of His Holy Spirit. As she preached, people said they could not stop listening to her preach, for every word was a word from heaven. During the Great Depression, she created a ministry kind of like the Salvation Army, where her church fed over 1.5 million people in L.A. during the Great Depression because she mandated it that if you're a call from God, you're called to be the hands and feet of his Savior here on earth. Now, today, that same Angelus Temple that she built, she started the first radio ministry that turned into TV ministry for future pastors and teachers and preachers. That same ministry, Angelus Temple today, is the L.A. Dream Center where they're making a huge impact through Compassion Ministries and 24-7 outreach in Los Angeles. Our church has been led and built by women with a call of God upon their lives to do what God has called them to do. Pat Sanders, who started Loaves and Fishes out of the back of her car, taking food to people in need, has now converged to be the dream center we're feeding over 1,200 families per month. Or Callie Bankston, who's taught in this pulpit probably more than anybody else, who's an amazing Bible teacher, is the reason that we are a diverse church. She heard the voice of God and left uh, African-American, predominantly African-American church, came to this church and still leads groups of people and groups of the community into this church. Or Melissa Dollarson, who is an anointed voice and worship leader and intercessor that leads in this church that in many other churches would not be allowed to lead. Or my own wife, Toya, who leads our Dream Center Ministries, leads our campus in Haiti, who is now with Miss Betty Snyder, who is the reason we have a campus in Haiti. That is, Toya was a 14-year-old girl. She went on our first mission trip, and she saw Miss Betty Snyder, who ran multiple missions organizations in Haiti. She saw a woman empowered with passion and desire to reach unlost people in Haiti. A couple years ago, we met her again after years and we sat with her, and she's the one that gave us this campus, this church, and this school in Haiti that we've adopted as Chapel Haiti. My own life has been impacted by female pastors, female leaders that when I was 16 years old, I went to church for about a year and a half at a Baptist church. There was a woman who was leading the youth group at the time who was a mother to me when I didn't have a mother. She led me in compassion and mercy and love and grace and truth. She made an impact in my life so much that our oldest daughter is named after her. She's named Alicia after Alicia Sharpton. And so women have made an impact, not just in the church at large, but in this church specifically. We would not be where we are without women. So I think it's, it's vital that we remember the ladies. So don't touch a neighbor, but look at your neighbor and say, remember the ladies. Because you would not be here if it wasn't for the ladies. Remember the ladies. It says this in Joel 2.28. It says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Tie that to Galatians 3.28. Neither is there Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave 
nor free. There is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think what the Spirit is trying to say through these scriptures is that he does not care what the vessel looks like. He is just looking for empty vessels to pour his spirit into so those vessels can then pour that spirit out into whoever is around them. That is why this church is a multi-generational, multicultural church. We don't care what your race is. We don't care what your ethnicity is. We don't care what your background is. The spirit is looking for anybody and everyone who is willing to empty themselves of all of their junk so the spirit of God can pour himself into them so then they can pour themselves out. That is why we're a multi-generational. The old men, the young men, the, the men, the women, the sons, the daughters, God does not care about your age. Most moves of God do not start from the older generation. They start from the younger generation. Why? The older generation, we get stuck in our ways. The younger generation is looking to find out what the Spirit is doing, and they jump on and go wherever he leads them to go to. That is why this church, we are multicultural, because the Spirit of God is not restricted by boundaries, by flags, by banners, nor nations. The Spirit of God is moving wherever there are people who say, yes, he is speaking, I must obey. That's why this is the main point if you want to write anything down. This is, this is who we are. This is who I am. This is who we are as a people. We believe men and women are created differently, yet are equally gifted equally called and equally anointed. We believe here at Chapel, we believe men are created differently than women. We believe they're not supposed to be one and the same. They're made different, created different. There's different roles in the family, yet we are equally gifted by the Spirit of God, equally called by the Father, and equally anointed by the Spirit of God to fulfill specific purposes on our lives. It is that simple. Yes, we are different. Thank God. Read one study that said women have, I think it was 40% more connective brain tissue than men. And I thought to myself, that must start after the teenage years for curls. Meaning women have 40% more connective brain tissue between one hemisphere and the other. That's probably why women have more intuition than men. I don't know how many times Toy has told me, I, I don't really know about that person or that, that thing. I don't know about this decision. And I'm just like, let's just do it. I, I trust them. I can do this. And I always get burned. Why? I don't have the same connective tissue. But yet men, it is designed and it is proven in research that we have 14% greater bone density. I Meaning we may not be as smart, but we can break stuff much better than you can we're different. God created us differently. Why? Together, there was greater strength in diversity. If we were all the same way or made the same way or did the same things, we wouldn't function in the beauty in which God calls us to need each other to fulfill the purposes he's given us as people. We're different, but we have the same spirit. 
We talked about it last week that our bodies are a tent. They're a temple. They're temporary. But the Spirit of God is the same in me as it is my wife or my daughters or Beth Moore or Priscilla Shira. The Spirit of God, of God is not a male spirit nor a female spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. And it's the same Spirit that was in Jesus that resurrected him from the grave. It's the same spirit that led him to obey the Father and to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and to do the will of God here on earth. That same spirit does not look at someone and say, well, that's a male, I'll empower the male, that's a female, I think I'll stay away. It's the same spirit. We're created differently, but it's the same spirit and the same calling and mission. There's believers We're all called to follow Jesus and to fulfill his mission. And if we believe John 3.16 is a vitally important scripture, meaning that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, if we believe that message, that people need to hear that message, and we believe Matthew 28 that he says, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey, if it is that important, if the great commission and the gospel is eternally vital, not just temporarily, if it's eternally vital, why would God want to immediately cut his missionary force in half before he ever got started? Why would God say, we only need 50% of my followers to actually obey the Great Commission and actually do what I've called them to do? No, God, the mission of God is so important. We never see Jesus anywhere determining class of people, races of people, genders of people. He was so consumed with the mission, he didn't care who was fulfilling it. Even in Mark chapter 10, the disciples came to Jesus. Jesus, these other people are baptizing people in your name. We should stop them. Jesus said, no, no, no. If they're not against us, they're for us. Saying, I don't care how it gets done, I just pray it gets done. Matthew 9, 37 says, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Well, maybe it's few because we as people want to institutionalize the gospel and the mission rather than the Holy Spirit flow. And it's proven through church history that every time the Spirit of God is flowing, that both men and women are being empowered and gifted and in being called into leadership ministries and ministry opportunities throughout the entire world. Every single time the church is spiritually vital. But the moment the church becomes institutionalized, it begins to reflect more of the culture around the church than it does the spirit of God of the church. And when that happens, it starts to push out women because it becomes a power struggle and men begin to empower themselves and push back the women and the gift of this and say, well, you can do ladies ministry and you do kids ministry, but leave the real stuff to us. I don't know about you, but ministering those kids back there, that is the real job. I've preached to teenagers. That is the real job. Every time the church becomes institutionalized, it begins to worship its traditions and follow traditions and follow culture more than following the Spirit of God. But the good news is every time in church history that God has poured out his Spirit, we see a revitalization of women being used by God to advance his purposes. Right now, we're seeing it in Iran where the underground church is being led by females. 
They sent in the Welsh revival with John Wesley. If you have a Methodist background, it was John Wesley preaching, but it was women leading the whole move of God. Every single time we see the Spirit move, the Spirit does not check to see what your race or your background or your gender is. He's just looking for anybody who says, yes, come Holy Spirit in my life. And I know, I know there's different viewpoints on, on, on women in ministry. I know there's some people that believe women should not be in ministry. Women should not be in leadership. Women should not even speak in church. We call that uh, complementarianism, meaning women are to complement the men. There's egalitarianism, which means men and women are both equal. And there's great theologians, there's great churches that they're on both sides of that conversation. I have nothing against people who believe women shouldn't be in pastoral leadership. Have nothing against people that believe men and women are equal in every single role and everything. My problem is when you start making that a gospel issue rather than a preference issue. Because when you interpret scripture, you can find both sides of the equation. And so I've, I've went hard on some denominations. Not because of their belief, but because they try to push their beliefs down people's throat as a matter of salvation instead of a matter of preference. I believe you should be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to make that a salvation issue. It is a preference issue, and it's an empowering issue. I believe women should be empowered in ministry. I'm not going to make that a salvation issue. I'm going to make that a preference issue. There's both sides of the equation, and it all comes down to how do we read and study the Bible. We call that hermeneutics. So this is a quick theology lesson for you. Hermeneutics is basically the interpretation of Scripture. When I read the Bible, how do I understand what the Bible is saying to me, in the very first rule, the very first principle of hermeneutics is Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. I mean, I'm not going to interpret Scripture based off what tradition says or what culture says or what the world says. I'm going to base my interpretation of Scripture off what other Scripture says. The other two is, is context. What is the context? What is, what is the Holy Spirit saying to the original readers of this Word. What's he saying to those people? And then what does that mean in the context of the New Testament or the Old Testament? What does that mean in context of the entire Bible? For the Bible never ever contradicts itself. If it looks like a contradiction, it means you need to keep going deeper because you're reading through the wrong lens. And so to help you understand, there's a lot of what God says in the scriptures about empowering women that will help you interpret some harder scriptures. And the first one this, women were equally, equally gifted, equally called, and equally anointed in the Old Testament. Everybody say Old Testament. Meaning, this isn't a feminist movement thing. Because I believe that God, it was God's original idea to empower women. I believe feminism is a cheap counterfeit of God's empowerment. Let me, let me say that again. I believe it's God's idea to empower women, empower them for ministry, empower them for leadership. But I believe feminism is a cheap counterfeit that tries to disrupt those roles and make men women and make women men. Because it's amazing how when feminism cranked up, all of a sudden the homosexual agenda cranked up. They're one in the same. God wants to empower women in the Old Testament all the way through, starting in Judges 4, 4. God gifted, called, and anointed Deborah to lead the entire nation of Israel. But before God established King Saul and King David, they were led by judges, which was a leader of the entire nation. And God chose a woman to lead the entire nation. He said this, 
Now, De- now Deborah, a prophetess, this is the Old Testament, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. What a name. This is my husband, Lapidoth. What in the world? Was judging Israel at the time. She says, sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she was ruling the entire nation. She was a prophetess, she was a judge, and she was the worship leader. This is Old Testament. This is not a new age, modern, trying to bring new culture into the church. And then in 2 Kings 22, God gifted, called, and anointed Huldah as a prophetess to bring reformation and revival back into the nation of Israel. It says this in 22.14. So Helkah, the priest, and Ayakim, and Akbar, and Saphan, and Isa. Went to Huldah, the prophetess, the Old Testament, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tipka, son of Harris, these names, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And if you read the entire chapter, she gives them a prophecy that the male leaders, the king, was out of bounds and out of alignment with God. And it was a woman prophetess who brought the word of the Lord to bring restoration and revival back into God's holy people. So so God was empowering women in ministry roles and in leadership in the Old Testament. Then Jesus comes. We see very quickly Jesus was a person who empowered women in a day and time where everyone else was devaluing women. Roman culture devalued women. In Jerusalem at this time, they devalued women. One one, uh, person said this way, the foundation stone of Jesus' attitude towards women was his vision of them as persons to whom and for whom he had come. He did not perceive them primarily in terms of their sex, their age, or marital status. He seems to have considered them in terms of their relationship or lack of relationship to God. What that means is Jesus came. He didn't start looking at people based on their ethnicity based on their socioeconomic status, based on their race, or based on their gender. He saw people in two categories, in a relationship with the Father or not in a relationship with the Father. That's all he cared about. And he says, if I could find people in a relationship with the Father, I'm going to empower them to help me solve this problem. That is how Jesus saw the world. That is the heavenly kingdom perspective of seeing life. And if you look at life right now, if you look at politics We don't look at it as two categories. We look at it as, well, they're Republican, they're Democrat, they're black, they're white, they're rich, they're poor, they're legal, they're illegal, they're a refugee, they're a citizen, they're this, they're that. The world tries to separate everybody into a box. Jesus said there's only two boxes. You're under the Father's love or you're outside of the Father's love. And he let everything through that lens. He even talked about women in teaching. Other rabbis would avoid using women in their teaching, and their teaching was male-centered. Yet Jesus would use examples of women over and over and over again in his teaching. He was doing that in a way to add value to women. He talks about the woman with the lost coin. After he talked about the, the shepherd looking after his one sheep, he says, there's a woman, she lost a coin, and she searches the whole house for it. And he goes through other scriptures of all these women, the woman knocking on the judge's door over and over again, which is the parable about praying and seeking the Father's will. Other rabbis would discount that altogether. They would never use a female in their parables or teaching. 
Other rabbis would avoid women. They wouldn't teach women. They wouldn't allow women to follow them. Yet Jesus had many women following him as he would instruct them and teach them. Even women sitting at his feet to instruct them and teach them. The woman at the well, the reason disciples say, what are you doing talking to this woman? This is the first time they're in John chapter 4. They're very new in the journey. Every other rabbi, every other teacher in Jerusalem and Israel would have avoided her at all costs. Yet here's Jesus not just connecting with her. He's teaching her the will of the Father. He's sharing the gospel with her and not just sharing it. Then he gives her the gospel to go share it with other people. She may be the very first evangelist in the Bible. But every other rabbi would have ignored her and overlooked her. And I'm here to say that the time of the church ignoring the spiritual gifts and the spiritual callings and the spiritual purpose of women is over. I'm telling you, if we're going to see the road, I've seen all these people on this political mandate praying for revival and praying for this. We can't have revival till we open up the vessels. And when the vessels are opened up, God will pour. There's people in this room that I know. There's young women in this room. There's old women in this room that you've been overlooked by the church, even though there's a gift from heaven inside of you. And I'm here to tell you, the world may overlook you, men may overlook you, other women may overlook you, church leadership may overlook you, culture may overlook you, but you have a Savior. He doesn't overlook you because of your race, because of your gender, because of how many husbands you've had or where you've been. We have a Savior. He moves closer to us, not farther away. That is powerful. Could you imagine this woman? She's been married multiple times. She's been looked down upon by men, by culture, maybe by other rabbis, maybe other leaders. And here Jesus. Jesus isn't just another rabbi. He's the son of man in the flesh. And he shows up. And he lets her know, I recognize you. I know where you've been. I know you. Yet I know you, I still love you, and I still believe in you. Now go tell other people what I've shared with you in my presence. That is powerful. Well, one, of the, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is Alicia Sharpton, who I was talking about when I was 16 and 17 years old. I was a rough kid from a rough home. She was the first female I really ever had in my life who saw potential in me and saw something that was lovable in me. And as I was there, man, I was, I was there. Like, I, I'm running with the, the bad kids on Monday through Saturday, but I'm on church on Sundays. And she knew my junk. She still loved me. She knew where I've been. She still cared about me. She knew what I've been through. She still believed in me. And it awakened something inside of me. Yet, about a year and a half into it, the senior pastor of the church was a Baptist church. The senior pastor of the church stood up and said, now listen, we have a, another youth pastor. Because Alicia's a female and women can't be in authority over a male, and they can't be in ministry, so we're going to slide a guy in here. Right? I'm a 17-year-old thugged-out punk. I don't know the Bible. I don't know theology. I don't know denominational stuff. All I knew is this. You let her lead men. You let her lead boys. You let her preach the gospel. You let her share the love of Christ. You let her care for people in your flock while it was convenient, but once you found another vessel, it was no longer convenient. Now your theology changes. 
And that's what happens in, in the world. Once culture comes in, we start changing our theology to match what we want and what we desire. And all of a sudden, the Bible changes. The Bible looks more like us than it does Jesus. Well, when I read something I don't like, if I read something that tells me I shouldn't live my life a certain way, I shouldn't handle my money a certain way, I shouldn't treat my wife a certain way, I shouldn't do this a certain way, we read it, but then once we get to a place, we start finding ways to discount what the Bible says so we don't have to change. And I'll tell you, Jesus is Lord, but he's not really Lord until it becomes inconvenient for him to be Lord in your life. It's easy for Jesus to be Savior. He's only Lord when he's telling you to do something you don't want to do. And Jesus rocks the world. It says this, uh, Grant, who's a theologian, said this, Jesus overturned Jewish views on the place of women being restricted to the home by giving them an active role in his mission and even chose them to be the first recipients of a resurrection appearance. Women were the first ambassadors of the age to come and such they function as a remnant within Jesus' band of followers to others back to him. That's powerful. When you realize Jesus chose to reveal himself resurrected first to the women. Then the women had to go back and share it with the men. On the day of Pentecost, there was women in the room. When they chose the 12th disciple to replace Judas, it was women in the room to help make that decision. Jesus chose to empower women everywhere he went, even in the New Testament. In the New Testament, women were equally gifted, equally called, and equally anointed by God in the early church. Paul, the, the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, the one who wrote the scriptures that many people used to say women shouldn't be in ministry, I want to read this to you. This is what he says. He's writing to the church in Rome, and to put this in context, the hermeneutical principle, 1 Corinthians and the book of 1 Timothy are written as letters to pastors of those two churches, the church at Corinth and the church at Ephesus. There were major problems going on in both of those churches. It was corrective. It was disciplinary in procedure. But Rome is a church that was thriving. It was mostly Jewish converts. There was no problems. There was no issues. He wasn't correcting anyone or correcting anything. And this is how he writes to the church at Rome. Starting verse, in chapter 16, verse 1, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. That's a, that's a female, a servant of the church in Centura, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she's been a patron of many and myself as well. Greet Prisca or Priscilla in many translations and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the other church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert in Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adonikus, Andronicus, and Janiah, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. I'm going to skip some of these names because I cannot even try to pronounce them. Greet A.M., my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ. My beloved Statius. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristopolis. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. What a last name. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphonia and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus. Another name. I actually had a guy on my AAU basketball team named Rufus. I cannot read that scripture without thinking about Rufus. 
chosen Lord, but also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Greet the, the last five names and the brothers who are with them. Greet Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. What is happening is Paul is finishing this letter to the church at Rome, and he is affirming the ministry of pastors, apostles, deacons, and missionaries. He's saying, all these people, they're approved by me for the work of the ministry. All these people I list, they're approved by me. The apostle Paul, I'm giving my mark. I'm giving my, my, my signature on these people. And there's 29 people listed in these 16 verses. 29 people, Paul says, these are good people. These are people anointed by God himself. I recognize it. Out of those 29 people, 10 are women. Out of 29 people, one-third are women. And Paul is recognizing them in ministry. One is Phoebe. And Phoebe was actually the one who delivered this letter from Paul to this church in Rome. And the word is, is used as a deacon, meaning she was a deacon, but the word that's used there is also known as the word being ordained that Paul uses for Timothy, meaning she is ordained as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You keep on going. Priscilla and Aquila were two missionaries, but Priscilla's name is always listed first, meaning it was more Priscilla as the leader and Aquila was supporting her in her role. Even so much in Acts chapter 18, I think it is, that Apollos was a minister or an apostle who was preaching a gospel, but it was wrong. And Priscilla is the one that takes him aside and corrects his theology, corrects him, and Apollos doesn't even push back from Priscilla correcting him. They were serving all over Asia Minor. You also have Junio, which some translations try to make a male name, but it's a female Name. They were a missionary couple who are persecuted for their faith. In the Greek, it actually refers to her being an apostle of Jesus Christ. You have others. You have seven or eight more names. Paul is affirming women in ministry. And so then you get the two scriptures, 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, that, that many denominations use to say women aren't allowed to be empowered. This is what the Bible says. We can't interpret scripture based off one scripture. We interpret scripture based off all of the scripture. So if Paul's affirming 10 women at the church of Rome, then obviously he says women shouldn't do something in another scripture. There had been something going on in that scripture. Because I've heard it said, shouldn't women just be quiet in church? You know, my life would be much easier if just women were quiet altogether. I have three teenage girls in my house. The only time they're not talking is when they hate you. When they do like you, they talk until you hate them. And so it's this back and forth conversation going on. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. This is a scripture that many believers who think that women shouldn't be empowered use. It says this. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. A couple of problems with that scripture is the law says nothing about women remaining silent. So he can't be referring to the law of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, because the law of Moses has nothing to say about women remaining silent. So if he's referring to a law, it had to be the law of Corinth, possibly. It had to be some other type of law. But the other problem is, if you look in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells women 
how they should pray in church. He tells the men their heads should not be covered. The women their, hair sh- their heads should be covered. And when they pray, they should pray like this. So Paul tells them in one chapter that they should pray in church. Then he also tells them they should all prophesy. And you can't prophesy without speaking. And then all of a sudden you get to this scripture and it says they shouldn't speak in church. So was Paul having a, a crisis of belief or a crisis of principle or a crisis or law? Or what was going on? For him to affirm women in one chapter and then all of a sudden tell them to be quiet in the next. So when you read 1 Corinthians, it is a letter, not a good letter. It is Paul writing to say, listen, you are messing up vitally. You're messing up communion. You're messing up the gifts of the spirit. You're messing up love. You're just messing everything up. And so he writes this letter to correct the problem. Even in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, he tells them this is how an orderly service should go. That if somebody's prophesying, you should be quiet. If somebody's giving a word of knowledge, you should be quiet. If somebody has a hymn, you should be quiet and let one go after another. And so what's happening is you've included a whole group of women that in the Corinthian culture were dominant over the males. And they come into the church as a home church type environment. So if you can imagine in your house, you're trying to have a Bible study slash worship service in the living room, but the women are trying to get things together in the kitchen and they keep talking. You're trying to share this amazing point or amazing revelation God just gave you. You're trying to share it, but then the women keep talking over in the kitchen or talking over here as they're talking amongst each other. And so Paul's not just saying women be quiet. He's saying everybody should be quiet when revelation is going forth. Even at the end of this chapter, he says, all y'all, the the correct translation would be y'all. All All of y'all need to be quiet when God is moving in the churches. He's not just referring to one particular group. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2 is another major one. Says this, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a male. Rather, she should remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, Then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. First Timothy is another book that's corrective, and the whole letter is written about false teachings entering the church. So this is the church at Ephesus. So we read Ephesians. Timothy is the pastor of Ephesians. Ephesians, there's a lot of spiritual warfare going on in Ephesians. When you read it, it's warfare, 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 warfare. When he writes this letter to Timothy, this is a book about false teachings and spiritual warfare. And the warfare was this. Timothy's trying to build a church in a pagan culture. There's a few Jewish converts that, that have some foundation, some baseline, some history of the, of the scriptures. But there's also a lot of people that are completely pagan. And the pagan worship in Ephesus and some that was in Corinth was worship of a goddess named Artemis. Artemis was a goddess that they viewed as the mother of all gods and goddesses. And they would worship her in very feminine ways. Meaning, 
that when they worshiped, there was fertility involved in the worship. But there's also this disruption that they taught that the only way men could be saved was to become a female because females owned the truth of salvation. Lord, help us. So what they would practice is this. Males who wanted to get saved would go and worship Artemis. In order to worship her and gain this knowledge, this special knowledge of salvation, they would literally practice ritual castration. The men would show up at the temple and castrate themselves in order to become females to gain a knowledge of truth. They would then begin to walk around and dress like women, talk like women, and act like women because that is where the power of Artemis arrived. So when you see the homosexual agenda, this is not a new thing. It's still a worship of a false god. It's literally thinking you received knowledge and freedom and salvation through changing your sex. Artemis was preaching it 2,000 years ago that if you want freedom, you were not created to be this way. You need to change your sex and find freedom through this change of gender. And so this was becoming into the church. Gnosticism is where you take some truth and you apply different truth. And many people call Gnosticism a religion of rebellion. Meaning it takes the Bible and turns it upside down. So here's what these pagans, these Gentiles were doing at Ephesus. They'd been worshiping Artemis their entire lives. When they worship Artemis, it changed the structure of the family. It changed the structure of leadership where the woman was over the man and the woman dominated the man. They took the story of Adam and Eve and started saying Eve was actually Artemis. And then Eve came before Adam, and Eve actually had many, 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 many children with all these other gods because she's the mother of all gods. And Adam just happened to be one of those people that she had children with. But she created Adam in order to have babies with Adam. And so they would take the story of Adam and Eve, and they would change it where Adam was the one deceived. Adam was the one that brought the fruit to Eve, and the snake was actually a good character. And so when they did archaeology in Ephesus, what they find, they found many, many idols of Artemis and Eve. Literally, temples full of idols that look like Eve. And next to those idols, they'd find these things of serpents. Many homes would have serpents that stood at the door because they viewed the serpent as a leader of truth rather than a leader of deception. And so they started bringing this into the church so that the women were still trying to be dominant over the men because the women came before the men did. And so Timothy, this young pastor, God bless him, he's just trying to preach the gospel. He's just trying to have a good chicken potluck. He's just trying to get some small groups started. He's just trying to get a halfway decent worship service started. And all of a sudden, all these women come in, and what are they doing? They're preaching a gospel that's completely opposite of what he's trying to preach. And when they would worship Artemis, they would let their hair down and they would dance and they would do certain things as seductive measurements to seduce men into what? Castrating themselves so they could get final knowledge of truth. And so they come into the church, they're wearing their hair down, they're worshiping in these ways that are seductive. And Paul says, no, 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 you need to make sure your hair's braided. Don't be bringing that junk in this church. He says the same thing in Corinth. When you pray, make sure your head is covered. What? We're not bringing that stuff in this church. See, the story of 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy specifically is not about men and women. It's about false teachings entering into the body of Christ. 
And Paul starts to try to nail it down because even the word have authority over is a word that's used for murder and domination. He's saying, no, a woman should never be dominating a man. A woman should never be making a man castrate himself. I was joking with the staff. When I read that, it blew my mind. I thought, well, we do the same thing. We just call it marriage today. Paul's telling him, easy, easy. Paul's telling him, listen, this is how it's going to go. So one person wrote it this way. He retranslated it based on the Greek. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach nor represent herself as originator of man. Why? Artemis was preaching that she, that Eve, was the originator of man, not the other way around. And she should be in conformity with the scriptures. Why? For Adam was created first, then Eve. See, what he's trying to do is correct this. So when you read it again, it says this. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Why? They've been told they can't worship. They've been told they can't worship without becoming a female. And here's Paul saying, no, I believe we're created differently, but we're equally gifted, equally empowered, and equally called. That if you're a man, lift up your hand. You can worship God as a man. You don't have to become a woman to worship God. He says, lift up your hands and worship. Likewise, also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair like you're worshiping Artemis, not with gold or pearls like you're worshiping Artemis, or a costly attire like you're worshiping uh, Artemis, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness or Christ. Therefore, let a woman, if she's talking about Artemis, if she's talking about Adam and Eve, if she's bringing this junk into our church, let her learn quietly with all submissiveness. Why? She hadn't learned to submit yet. She comes from a household where the man is submitted to the woman. And Paul's saying, no, 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 get this back in order. I do not permit a woman to teach that stuff, that junk in this church, or to exercise authority or dominate over her husband. Rather, she should remain quiet if that's what she's going to do. For Adam was formed first, not Eve, not Artemis, then Eve. And it was Adam was not deceived, it was Eve. But the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. Paul is not saying, he's already talked about women prophesying, women praying, Phoebe, all these women in Rome. He's already empowered women all over the place. He gets here and it is countercultural. It is worst case scenario. And he says, we're not bringing that culture, that junk, that paganism into this church. It's the same way with this. Feminism is a cheap counterfeit. Feminism is actually a, a byproduct of Artemis. Where instead of men and women being equally gifted, equally called, and equally anointed, it's where women are trying to take authority to be the anointed, the called, the empowered. They're trying to step into the, the role of man instead of walking in what God has created us and called us to be. The best way to interpret scripture is through scripture. And so for some of you in this room as women, you have the gifting of God inside of you. Somebody, you get my phone. You grab it, Eric. It's sharing the message for some reason. Some of you in this room are women. You have the gift of preaching. You have the gift of intercessory prayer. You have the gift of leading. You have, the, you have spiritual gifts inside of you 
but you've believed a lie for so long that you don't believe it's from God anymore. I don't want to tell you, it's from God and it's for God. Some of you allow tradition to squash those things down. Some of us men are so insecure that instead of empowering women, we try to hold women back because we think it makes us feel more powerful. One of my greatest joys in life is not my ambition or what I would consider my success. It's watching Toya thrive in what God has called her and empowered her and gifted her to do. When you are secure, me and Pastor Anthony talked about this, whenever the church starts trying to grab a hold of power, we start losing our calling and our gifting and our anointing. But when our eyes, when we're focused on the mission, we don't care how it gets done, we just care that it gets done. We don't care who's doing it. I don't care who's preaching it. I don't care who's accomplishing it. I don't care who's doing it. There's other churches in this town doing a great job. I don't care who does it. I just pray it gets done. And so if you're a woman or a man in that place where you're trying to figure out, what am I supposed to do? I want you to remember this, that you are called, you are gifted, and you are anointed. But I'm going to tell you, don't seek Many times in, in churches, when women have a gifting or a calling, they start trying to seek recognition from a man, seek recognition from the leadership. I want to tell you, don't seek recognition from men. Seek the face of God and let him recognize you. Don't seek position. Don't seek power. Let your gifts make room for you. Like if you're gifted, you don't have to seek power or grab a position or grab a title. Your gift will make room. Everyone recognizes a true gift. And three, don't neglect your first calling. You may not be able to stand on a, on a platform and preach to hundreds or thousands. You may not be able to send a platform and lead worship for hundreds or thousands. You may not be able to start a ministry or, or a missionary foundation. But what you can do is go home and minister to your kids, minister to your husband, minister to your neighbors, minister to your friends. God, God is looking for people that will empty themselves out so he can pour himself in, so they can pour themselves out. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes, just for a second. I'm going to do something a little different. With every head bowed, every eye closed. I, I believe God is raising up a new generation. There's, there's two things I believe is going to happen I don't know when it's going to happen, but I believe revival is coming to the church. And there's two groups of people I believe are going to be vitally important for that revival to come. The first, I believe revival is going to begin in the black church in America. I believe God is going to start something in the black church that's going to overflow and affect every other church. Two, I believe God is going to use women as initiators and leaders in the next great revival. And pride is going to get in the way. There's going to be men who stand in the way. There's going to be people that are insecure that stand in the way. But God is looking for women. He's calling up a new generation of young women and old women who recognize the call of God upon their lives. Some would be the call to preach. Some would be the call to be missionaries. Some would be the call to be worship leaders. Some would be called to be pastors. Some to be leaders and, and administrators. And God is looking for them that say, the Spirit is calling me, I must go. So the first step to being empowered is recognizing, God, I need it. God, I want it. God, I recognize your voice. And I'm saying yes. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm not going to have you come forward. But if you're a, a woman in this place, and you said, I, I feel like I'm gifted and called for a purpose for God. 
I just want you to stand to your feet. Wherever you're at, just stand up because I can pray for you. Thank you. All the room. As you're standing, I just want you to look at me and I want to publicly repent. For other churches, I'm not saying anything negative about other churches, but other churches, other leaders, other ministers that did not recognize your gifting or your calling. I want, I want to publicly repent for what is not just done to you, but what is done to the body and made the body unhealthy. And I want to tell you, I believe in you. I believe in your gifting. I believe in your anointing. I believe in your purpose. I believe God has equally gifted you. He's equally called you. And he's equally anointed you to be carriers of his presence and carriers of revival to wherever you go. That the church is a body. Who are we playing? Who are we to say we don't need of one certain part of the body? We need you. The body of Christ needs you. The body of Christ needs women who can pick up the mantle of some of these great women of God we just talked about. Women who are willing to face persecution, women who are willing to face accusation, women who are, are willing to face sacrifices, but are willing to give birth to revival through their life. I believe in you. I believe that the same spirit that resurrected Christ from the grave is on the inside of you. And I believe he's looking for people who will release that spirit. And I want to tell you, God has called you to release that spirit. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for the body. And I thank you for a Savior that does not overlook people. He's looking to empower. He's looking to equip. He's looking to anoint carriers of his presence to take the kingdom everywhere they go. And Father, this moment, I thank you for women who say yes to the Spirit of God. Women who say yes to the callings of God. And Father, I know that as women with a calling upon their lives, there's been difficult situations and seasons of waiting and seasons of frustration. And I just pray that you redeem all the years that the locusts have taken. I pray that you restore confidence and faith in the giftings you've placed inside of them. Father, those with prophetic giftings, I pray they begin to rise to the surface again. Father, those with words of knowledge and words of discernment and words of wisdom. Father, those with gifts of healing. Father, those with the gift of preaching. Those with the gift of the evangelist. Father, I pray you begin to raise those gifts to the surface again. And Father, give them the confidence and the faith not to suppress those things, but to release those things into the body and into the world. So I pray that you protect the contents of this, these vessels. That even you said that the male is stronger than the female in regards to the vessel. I pray that you surround them with men that are not insecure. Husbands that are not insecure. That are willing to empower women, empower their wives, empower their moms, empower their daughters to be everything you created them to be. 
that are not scared of their woman leading, are not scared of their woman being in power, not scared of the woman ministering the gospel, not scared of what other men may say, but are so confident in the grace and identity of Jesus that they will step back and release women, wives, mothers to spark revival in your church. Oh, Jesus, we bless you. I pray for restoration. I pray for forgiveness of those who have been pressed down and even offended, Father. I pray for a release of forgiveness in this place today. And above all, we pray that you receive glory for our lives, for our words, and for our purpose, and that you have your way in us and through us. Allow for your kingdom to come in us and through us. In Jesus' name. couple of announcements, a couple of things that I want to share with you to make sure that you are in the know for this week um, as we are moving forward. Um, if this is your first time here, we thank you for being a part of Chapel. Um, please make sure you stop at our connection point. It's through these double doors and to the right. There is a room there. Some pastors will be waiting there for you. Um, but we just want to set, put a gift in your hands, say hello, say thank you for being here and being a part of Chapel today. Also, next week is Coffee with the Pastors. It will be in the gathering room, which is out these double doors and to your right down that hallway um, right after the service. You'd like to get some more information, know who we are, have some questions, and um, we would love to meet you there and spend some time with you next week um, in the gathering room. And then also, we want to let you know about um, our chapel online courses. If you go on our website, wearechapel.org, uh, there's a courses tab that you can go. You can click on that, and there will be several um, courses that you can begin to take uh, where you kind of have a deeper dive into a few things. Um, there will be uh, the, a, a course on the Holy Spirit course on Chapel Essentials of who we are, and then also a Following Jesus course. We encourage you to go and check those out. It has some more information, but it's just a deeper dive where you can get in there and you can spend some time uh, in those on your time. So we encourage you to go check those out, but we love you, and we hope that you have a fantastic rest of the week, and um, we are praying for you as usual. We will continue to do so, but have a great week. We love y'all. Thanks for being with us. <laughs>